We are going to be looking at lesson number 11 in our study of the early church from the book of Acts. The title for our lesson is The Persecution Begins. The Persecution Begins. Remember, Peter is preaching a sermon following the healing of the lame man, the congenital lame man who was then healed by Peter. And Peter, that that gives case for him to preach because everybody gathers together in Solomon's porch and Peter has this wonderful opportunity to preach about Christ. Well, he is still preaching when he is interrupted. Now, his first sermon was not interrupted, was it? on the day of Pentecost, but this second sermon in Acts chapter 3 is interrupted, and the interruption comes in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. So we're going to begin, actually I've called the interruption of the sermon the first part of our outline. I'm going to read the first four verses, okay? So look with me at Acts 1, I mean, I'm sorry, Acts 4, verses 1 to 4. It says, and as they spake, who is they? John and Peter, but really Peter is the spokesman, all right? As they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit, this is the good news, verse 4, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. So Peter's sermon was suddenly interrupted by the appearance of the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, who came collectively to arrest Peter and John. I also think they arrested the former lame man, and we'll talk about that as we proceed. You know, there were always priests in the temple. The temple was full of Levitical priests doing their thing. And these men on this day would be officiating over the prayer time at 3 o'clock. There were three prayer times at 9 in the morning, 12 noon, and 3 p.m. This was the 3 p.m. prayer time. And they would be all over the place. And they would also be involved in offering the evening sacrifices at 3 p.m. And likely the priests, you know, some of them would have heard Peter because he was right there in Solomon's porch of the temple and he was preaching rather loud. A big group of people gathered around him. So these priests would have heard some of the message and they were very upset that common Galilean men were teaching the people when these guys had absolutely no rabbinical credentials. You know, they, they have no business. In the minds of the priests, these guys had no business setting themselves up as religious teachers. Then the Sadducees, we, we read in verse 2, were grieved. Why were the Sadducees grieved? What was being preached by Peter? The resurrection. And they, they adamantly denied bodily resurrection. They were big time against the resurrection. Now, the Pharisees did believe in resurrection, but they believed in a general resurrection that would occur at the end of history. You know, way off in the distance, the resurrection of the, of the saved and the unsaved. But um, the, the Sadducees believed in no afterlife. They just believed that um, in the here and now. They didn't believe in angels, spirit beings. They didn't believe in a lot of things. I think they were really just secularists. But um, they were grieved because Jesus was being publicly proclaimed as having risen from the dead. 
If Jesus was indeed resurrected bodily, as his followers were proclaiming, then it would expose the Sadducees as the heretics that they were. Well, along with the priests and the Sadducees, coming to arrest Peter and John was a man called the captain of the temple. Now, he would have been a member of the family of one of the chief priests. And the chief priests were generally also Sadducees, so he would not probably believe in the resurrection either. You do know that the Romans gave the Jews the right to govern over the temple complex. The Romans did not govern the temple. And this man was in Greek called the strategos. And if you look at that word, it looks like strategy. He was the commander in charge of the temple guard. He had a big responsibility. Remember we discussed how huge the temple was? The whole complex? Well, this guy's in charge of the whole thing. Really, his position of authority ranked him just under the high priest. Now, because there were two co-reigning high priests in Israel at this time, which tells you of the spiritual corruption of the nation of Israel, that they had two because there was only supposed to be one. But they had two co-reigning, Annas and Caiaphas. That made this guy third in command, really, over Israel. This was a big guy, a big mucky muck, I always like to say. So as we can imagine, these high-profile men likely push their way, you know, here we come, they're pushing their way through the crowd with a show of force as they come and they lay hands on Peter and John in order to arrest them. I don't know if they put them in bonds or handcuffs or whatever they did, but they, I'm sure they made a big show of it and marched up there and got these two guys and likely also the lame man, former lame man. And what time of day was it now? What does verse 3 tell us? It was now eventide. Now, that means it's probably around 5, 5.30, right before sunset. Now, all of this had begun, remember, when Peter and John were on their way into the temple for the prayer time. It said it was about the ninth hour. That's Acts 3.1. What time was the ninth hour? 3 p.m. We just mentioned that. So all this began about 3 p.m., And then, of course, you know, he healed the lame man, and then they ran over to Solomon's porch, and he preached his message. So that was likely about two hours earlier. Now it is eventide. And since it was illegal for the council, the Sanhedrin council, the ruling body of Israel, to meet, to have a session, or to hold a trial after sundown, they threw Peter and John in prison for the night. They'd have to wait till the morning to have their trial. And interrogate them. Now, do you remember there was another time when they didn't care a hoot if it was illegal or not to have council sessions during the night? And that was when they had those three illegal trials of Jesus. So they're just a bunch of hypocrites, but they throw these guys in prison for the night. In their thinking, if common people, just common people like these Galileans, were questioning the theology of their spiritual rulers, then it would undermine the authority of the entire council. So this was serious to them. Something had to be done. You know, lying about the robbery of Jesus' body had not succeeded very well. When this council had bribed the Roman soldiers to lie that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body, that didn't go over too well. Um, It had not silenced these people one bit. Or frightened them. I think they were hoping that it would frighten them so much that they would hightail out of the city. You know, they're after us. They think we've stolen the body. Let's get out of here. Let's go back to Galilee. That hadn't worked. And actually, they're growing in number, aren't they? The church is growing. I wonder if you noticed that the two apostles were not told why they were being arrested. 
were they? Do you think they were even read their Miranda rights? <laughs> and as we can also imagine, that whole city must have just been buzzing with the news of what had happened that day at the temple. First of all, with the miraculous healing of the lame man. Now, everybody in that town probably knew this guy's name. And so word was getting out, you know so-and-so who has laid there at the beautiful gate for decades? Oh, yeah, of course I know him. Whatever, you know, let's say his name was Zacharias or something. You know, he, he's, he can jump, he can leap, he can walk, he can skip, he can hop, he can dance. He's been healed. And then they would be talking about the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And everybody in Jerusalem knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. They knew all about his crucifixion. And now they're hearing about the resurrection. And then they would hear how Peter had explained to the people there in the temple that, that he had been their true Messiah all along. And how then the religious rulers were irate. And they came and they disrupted his message by putting him and John and even Mr. Lame Man into prison. The whole town is buzzing about this. You know how news spreads like wildfire? Well, that's what was happening in the city. And we can imagine that the believers, and now there's over 3,120 believers, and the number is growing every day. I can imagine that they quickly got together in prayer sessions in homes all over the city. And who would they be praying for? Peter and John, that they would have boldness as they stood before the council and uh, testified and that they they would just be safe and that they would be released from prison. I'm I'm sure they were praying for them. And verse 4, thankfully, is in the Bible because it tells us that in spite of the disruption, the Holy Spirit had used Peter's proclamation of the word of truth to convict souls to repent and to believe on Christ. Even though his sermon was interrupted, the word of God is sharp Alive, quick, and powerful, right? And it did its work. The number of men, and I've told you this before, but the Greek word that is used in this verse for men does exclude women and young people. But it tells us that the number of men who now belonged to the ever-growing church was about 5,000. Now, if you include the women, and we know there were women also saved, and young people, I am sure, the number is even above 5,000. So that's the good news, right? It's like the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.9 when he was in prison. He said, I may be bound, but the word of God is never bound. You can never bind. I mean, over the centuries, they've tried to bind the, the word. They've tried, tried to burn the word. They've tried to ban the word. But it keeps on going, doesn't it? Because the word of God is eternal. The word preached had taken root in people's hearts. So the foe was foiled. The FOE was foiled. Now, before we move along in our narrative of the the, uh, rest of this story, I do want to discuss a pattern that we have seen developing in the early church. First of all, and there has been this pattern, and it does continue. First of all, there's a mighty display of divine power. We saw this in chapter 2. That first display of mighty power was on the day of Pentecost. 
and of course the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which uh, then enabled those 120 to be able to speak in all kinds of Gentile languages and dialects that they had never known before, and it was just a mighty miracle, and that created an opportunity for the preaching of the gospel, didn't it? Which then resulted in many people placing their faith in Christ. 3,000 devout Jews. And then there followed a time of discipling those people who had put their faith in Christ. And we talked about the daily life of the new church family. Well, the same pattern was again repeated in Acts chapter 3. There was, uh, first of all, an amazing display of divine power in the healing of the former uh, lame man, man who was born lame which then provided Peter with another great opportunity for preaching the gospel. And what did it again result in? Abundant fruit, as we just read in verse 4. Number of men in the church now grown to 5,000. So according to this pattern that we see developing, this means that we would now expect to find the account of the daily life of the early church. And actually, if you look at verses 31 to 37 of this chapter, chapter 4, that is exactly what is described. I'm not going to take the time to read those verses, but we again hear about the daily life of the church. However, what happens before we get to those verses about the daily life of the church is something else that enters for the first time into the pattern of that first generation of believers. There is a disruption of Peter's preaching, and it is in the form of persecution that comes from the enemies of Christ. Now, the Lord, remember, had warned his apostles that this very thing would take place. In his farewell discourse, the night of his arrest, in John 15, 20, you all know this verse, he said, the servant is not greater than his Lord. So if they have persecuted me, guess what? They will also persecute you. The persecution of the enemy, however, is not the only thing that interrupts or disrupts the Lord's work through his church. You know, the book of Acts is the continuing work of the Lord Jesus in his church by his spirit. The enemy out there is not the only one that hinders the work of the church. We, we know to expect persecution from without, don't we? Isn't that just a given? Yeah, we're gonna, we, we know that we're going to have persecution from outside the church, from the enemies of Christ. And that's exactly what we do find in Acts chapter 4. It, is, it comes under, we could say this is a hindrance that is in the category of a physical type of disruption. This is physical. This is physical disruption. They come and they haul him off and throw him in prison. That's physical. But we should also be aware of the fact that we will encounter a pretension, pretension of God's people from within the church, which is what we find in Acts chapter 5. We won't get that to that till we come back in the fall. But in Acts chapter 5, a man and his wife, what are their names? Ananias and Sapphira pretend. They're pretentious. They pretend total surrender to the Holy Spirit when that simply is not the case. 
They lie to the people of the church, and they're lying to the Holy Spirit. And their punishment is pretty severe, isn't it? <laughs> they both drop dead on the spot. Hmm. We'd be in trouble today, right, if that was still going on. But these guys, these, this couple, they, they were seeking self-glory. That's a hindrance of the work of the church from within the church. And that was a, an example, that is an example for us, of moral disruption that occurs all too frequently in our churches today and has down through the centuries of church history, right? Moral disruption from within the church. Then, interestingly, in Acts chapter 6, so we have three chapters in a row that show us, us of disruptions to the work of the church. Chapter 6, there is a division among God's people. Do we ever see that in our churches? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> there was a group of Hellenistic Jews who were murmuring against the more Orthodox Jews about they felt that their widows were being neglected. So there was a disruption among God's people. And this too, as I said, comes from within the church, but it's between believers. It is a social kind of disruption. So what is it that deters and delays and disrupts the continuing work of the Lord on earth through his church? Physical, moral, and social hindrances. And the sad thing, is that two of the three come from inside the church. That is not good news, is it? Well, these interruptions which have now begun with the arrest of Peter and John by the Jewish religious rulers were not just recorded so that we would know the history of what happened. Whenever we look at the scripture, don't just look at the surface level. There's something else going on here that the Spirit wants to teach us. Acts is not just about the history of the early church. It is for our instruction, as all scripture is, right? All scripture is given for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness that the man, the woman of God, may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So it's for our instruction. Actually, we could say that the pattern, the book of Acts, is kind of like prophecy, in a way, because it's telling us what to expect in the church, both today and in the future. So what is it, do you think, that God wants us to learn from this example, these examples, starting with the, the outside persecution from the enemies of Christ? Um, what does he want us to learn about the example of hindrance, which is persecution from without? Do you think it is so that you and I can have some kind of an idea of what we might expect physically one day if things continue to go the direction they're going? Um, and that we might actually be bound and that we might have to um, stand before a court someday and, and, and speak out for ourselves or be threatened with death, thrown in prison, whatever. Do you think that's the primary reason for the Holy Spirit through Luke telling us about this? No, I don't really think that that's the primary reason. Um, I believe the primary purpose is to show us by example how spirit-filled people respond to persecution that comes from the enemy without, the world around us. 
Twice in in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, we read of people being filled with the Spirit. First of all, Peter, when he goes to speak, it tells us in verse 8, is filled with the Holy Ghost. And then if you look over at verse 31, it tells us that the assembly of believers who gather in praise and in prayer, praise because Peter and John have been released from prison, and they're praying so hard, and their praise is so magnificent that you know what happens? The building shakes. Wouldn't you like to see prayer meetings like that going on today? Where the whole building shakes? They caused a, mi- a minor earthquake. That's prayer. They were, and it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter 4 is really teaching us how spirit-filled people respond to persecution. So now let's look. That was the interruption of the sermon. Let's look at verses 5 to 7, the interrogation by the Sanhedrin. Starting at verse 5, And it came to pass on the morrow, the next day after they spent the night in prison, that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them, that would be Peter, John, and the lame man, former lame man, in the midst, they asked them, By what power or by what name have ye done this? All right, here in verses 5 and 6, we are given a rather impressive array, if you're impressed by this sort of thing, an impressive array of the persecutioners. Peter and John and obviously also the former lame man. And I say that if you look down at verse 10, and if you look at verse 14, clearly the lame man is there. The former, I have to keep reminding myself, the former lame man is there. Um, And I gather that he also spent the night with them in prison, because he is there with Peter and John when they bring him before the Sanhedrin council. But they're brought before the council, which consists of the rulers of the people, the elders, and the scribes. And who else is there? Annas and Caiaphas, the two co-reigning high priests of Israel, the two men most responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Now, Annas, remember, he was the one who was in charge of Annas's bazaar, which is what they actually called the, um, the whole marketplace thing that they had made out of the temple. Jesus called it, they've turned the temple into a house of merchandise and a den of thieves. He was in charge of that, and he was profiting greatly from it. He was a very, very wealthy man. Um, but it's interesting, he had been deposed from his office as high priest way back in 15 A.D. So for the past 18 years or so, he is not really the high priest of Israel. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is. Rome has put Caiaphas in the position as high priest. However, the Jewish people don't consider Caiaphas to be their high priest because Mosaic law said that a high priest is a high priest for his entire life. Just like our Supreme Court members, once they're in there, they're there for life, aren't they? It was the same way with the high priest. So the people of Israel still looked to Annas as their high priest. They didn't like him, but they considered him the high priest. He was very, very corrupt. 
Um, But he is now a very old man by this time. He's a skillful manipulator, and he continued to exercise great power through the election of the male members of his family to the high priesthood. Um, And that's why Luke actually calls him the high priest, if you look at verse 6, and Annas the high priest. Okay? Even though Caiaphas, according to... Annas was the one they looked to for religious matters. Caiaphas was kind of the one who they looked to in civic matters. Okay? But... um, Annas really kept power through his family members. Caiaphas was his son-in-law. So who do you really think was ruling over Caiaphas? Yeah, Annas. And then it also tells us, history tells us, that the high priesthood went to five of his sons and one of his grandsons. And one of his grandsons was named Jonathan. And many manuscripts have, in verse 6, instead of John, they have Jonathan. And we do believe that that was probably his grandson. But it does tell us that whoever this Alexander was, it says they were kindred of the high priest. So Annas kept power through what is called nepotism. Have you ever heard of nepotism? Mm-hmm. It's when you put family members <laughs> into places of power. Annas was the king of nepotism, that's for sure. All right, now, the assemblage of this Sanhedrin would have taken place in what was called the Chamber of Hewn Stone. It was exactly where Jesus would have stood before this very same council, looking into the many of the, probably most of the very same faces um, on the night of his arrest when they had those three illegal trials. The Lord, uh, the Lord, remember, they had illegally tried him in every conceivable way. They did everything. I mean, they bribed false witnesses. There was nothing they did legal about the trials of Jesus. But remember how they had even punched him in the face with their fists, and they had spit on him. Um, They had mocked him. They had slapped him. They were just rude and awful and ugly in every way conceivable. And now Peter and John are standing and looking into the same faces of these men. I can imagine what's going through their minds. This is where our Lord stood, and he was all alone. Where were we? You know, Peter was afar off at the fire denying him, and I'm not sure John where John was, but... I'm sure going through their minds, this is where our Lord was. But I'm thinking, too, about the Sanhedrin members. (laughs) These guys thought they were finished with Jesus when they crucified him and and put him in the tomb and had it sealed by the Romans, right? They thought, okay, we can wipe our hands of that. Uh, That was a long ordeal, but finally we have gotten rid of Jesus. And then three days later, the Roman soldiers come running to them and they give their report about the empty tomb. And other oh no, we thought we were done with this. So we, they bribed the Roman soldiers to tell the lie that the disciples came and stole his body. And now, here are standing before them two little Jesuses. I mean, oy vey. <laughs> I can't say that like a Jewish person really would. Oy vey, what's going on here? It's like Jesus is multiplying. What are we going to (laughs) do? We just can't ever get through this ordeal with Jesus. And he was multiplying, wasn't he? I mean, now the number's up to over 5,000. Their interrogation begins with two questions. They want to know by what power and by what name. They had done this. 
and I'm sure they went this and pointed at the, the lame man, former lame man standing there. <laughs> that obviously the this refers to the miracle of the man. They Now, the Sanhedrin council is very likely hoping that they are going to intimidate these men, Peter and John, with their great authority and their power. I mean, there they are sitting in front of them in a semicircle. They've got Peter and John, the lame man, right there in front of them, and they're all dressed in their fancy robes and their costumes, you know, and they got their long beards and they're all their, you know, religious paraphernalia is on, and they're hoping that they're going to intimidate Peter and John and because uh, they have the threat of death. They had just killed their leader, right, just a few months earlier. They had killed their leader. So they're kind of daring them to speak the name of Jesus in front of us. It's like, we dare you. By what name did you do this? Go ahead, speak that name. You know what we can do to you. You know the kind of power that we have. And likely these men remembered how easily the Lord's disciples had deserted him, scattered from him on the night of his arrest in Gethsemane. However, if they were hoping to intimidate these guys, they were dead wrong. They did not, yeah, they had the same faces. They were the same men that had scattered on the night of Gethsemane. But what they did not understand is that these men were very different. They were now empowered with the sure knowledge of Christ resurrection. They were now empowered with the spirit of the living God within them. And they were now very adept at using a sharp two-edged sword. I mean, they're getting better and better at using that sword with each and every passing day. So the pivotal crux of this whole matter here is the name, the name. By what power and by what name? If you go through Acts 4, you will find the name five times. Five is the number of grace. This is all about the name. They're daring the apostles to speak that name. What name are they talking about? That name that is above every name. That name that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. That name, the name of Jesus. We dare you. Speak that name and see what we do to you. It was really like a wonderful gift that these men, this council, was giving, handing over to Peter (laughs) to answer such a question about the power and the name of Jesus Christ. Because if there was one thing Peter and John wanted to talk about, what was it? Jesus Christ, that's exactly what they do. Let's look at the inspiration of the speech in verses 8 to 12. This is just, you can hardly believe it's the same Peter. Verses 8 to 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, By what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of, he couldn't wait to say this, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does does this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders which has become the head of the corner. 
And then he said, a verse I hope you've all memorized, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's it. That's his sermon. Short, to the point, right? This is our example of a spirit-filled person's response to persecution. Verse 8 right away tells us that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. That isn't that he got any more spirit, Holy Spirit, than anybody else, but he gave everything he was to the Holy Spirit. What an amazing defense Peter gives here. Again, notice this. As in his first sermon and his second sermon, now in his third sermon, he also begins by refuting something. Remember the first sermon? He refuted drunkenness. We are not inebriated. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Remember the second sermon? He refuted deity. Why are you looking at us as if by our power and righteousness we have healed this man? So first one, he refutes drunkenness. Second one, he refutes deity. And now he refutes this powerful counsel for their dereliction in arresting them. They were derelict to do that. They should never have arrested them. He says, in effect, have you arrested us for having done a good thing, a good deed to this impotent man and making him whole? Don't you think this council should have been happy that this poor guy could walk? Were they ever happy when somebody got healed like that poor man born blind and he was healed? They weren't happy. They wanted, I mean, they were just mad at him. It's just so, it's just awful. They have just such evil hearts. Instead of being happy for the man, they want to quiet up the whole thing. But Peter says, you know, are you arresting us for this good thing we have done? He must have, as he stood there saying that, he must have reminded them of Jesus. Because if you remember back in John chapter 10, after Jesus had said, the Father and I are one, they went ballistic, they were furious, He's claiming to be God. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, to stone him to death. And you know what he asked them? He said, for which good work is that I have shown you from my father? For which good work is it that you want to stone me to death? And now Peter's saying the same thing. So Peter must remind the council of Jesus, a little Jesus again. Can't get rid of him. So Peter went directly on the offense. He pointed out the foolishness of putting them on trial for having done a good thing. And that's where persecution might come to in this country. You know, people being put on trial, persecuted for doing good things. Christians go around doing good things. I hope you do. I hope we do. We should be. Peter turns the tables on these guys and accuses them of the great injustice of arresting people for doing good. And then, because they wanted to know by what power and by what name they had authority to heal the man, Peter gave it to them. They wanted to know, so he was going to give it to them. (coughs) Excuse me. He said he wanted all of them, not only the rulers of the people and the elders of Israel in verse 8, but all the people of Israel. He wanted the whole nation rulers and all the people, to know that it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man stands here before you whole. And then he put the whole Sanhedrin council on trial. (coughs) They're supposed to be, they think they're judging 
Peter and John, but Peter and John are really judging them. He puts them on trial (coughs) by proclaiming their guilt in having crucified the one who God then had to raise from the dead. You see, if God raised one who they killed, what does that logically mean? If God raised someone they killed, that means that they're the enemies of God, right? They killed him, but God had to raise him back up. Peter would not compromise. When we're persecuted from the world outside, do not compromise. Peter did not mince any words. He did not soften the truth at all. He absolutely refused to do that. He actually went straight for the jugular. (laughs) And the reason he did this, and he did it graciously, he really did. The reason he did this is because he put truth above everything else. Truth was for their benefit. He was being an evangelist here. He was giving them the truth. Because he wanted them to believe in the truth and be saved. You get it? People need the truth. They don't need a watered-down gospel. They need the truth. They need to know about sin. That they need to be convicted of their sin. So they can turn to the Savior. Now one thing that this council would have definitely thought proved that Jesus was not the Messiah would be that he did nothing to defend himself from being killed. Thank you, Terry. Where did you get that? That's cute. And it's even cold. Thank you. Thank you. So the the council members would have thought that um, because Jesus did nothing to prevent his own death, that he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. That they were able to put him to death, he couldn't be the Messiah. But now, Peter quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, in order to strengthen his case against these leaders. You see, over 1,000 years earlier, the psalmist had predicted that the Messiah would be rejected by the very people who were responsible for building the house of Israel. And who would that be? The religious authorities. He says in verse 11, and this is from Psalm 118, 22, the stone which the builders refused is become the head stone of the corner. And then in Psalm 18.23, the very next verse, Peter doesn't quote it, but it's in the Old Testament. The very next verse says, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What we find is that Peter had actually been listening very well to his master over the past three and a half years. Now, it didn't sound like that at times, did it? Some of the questions the apostles asked, I'm sure Jesus said, have they heard anything I've said? Do you ever get that feeling with your children or your grandchildren or I don't know who else? You know, you think they're not listening. They're not hearing a word I say. And you know what? Sometimes it might take years and years and decades. But finally, maybe one day you find out they really did hear me way back then. You know, might take years to make that evident. (laughs) But this is the case here. Peter had been listening to the master because Jesus had quoted from this very same verse, Psalm 118, 22, the week of his arrest. And I want you to go over there and look at it, Matthew 21, 42. Um, 
Well, you don't have to. I'm going to have you turning somewhere else in a minute. But uh, he had. I'm not going to go through all that. But he had quoted from that very same verse about the stone, which the builders. He had given a parable about the parable of the wicked vine dressers and how God sent them um, his prophets. And they took them and they murdered them and they were really ugly to them. And then finally God sent them his son and they took him and rejected him and killed him, even the son. And uh, the wicked vine dressers that religious rulers perceived that Jesus was speaking of them. They got it. He's talking about us, having killed the prophets and having killed God's son. And that's when Jesus then gives this verse from Psalm 118, the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. Well, the biblical symbol of a great stone was known by the Jews as being a picture of the Messiah. They knew that. When it was talked about a stone, a great stone, it was messianic. How did they know that? How did they figure that out? Well, they figured that out from Daniel. Remember Daniel chapter 2? Daniel is in Babylon, a captive in Babylon, under King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar goes to sleep one night, and he's, he's very upset because he has a dream. But he, can't, he wakes up, and the, dr- the dream woke him up, and he was very upset about it, and he needed to know um, what it meant, but the problem was he couldn't remember what the dream was. You have dreams, and you wake up, and you can't remember what they are? You maybe just remember a bit and piece of it, but he couldn't remember, so he calls in all of his wise men and his astrologers and all those guys, and they all say, King, this is a little bit weird. How in the world are we supposed to... We can interpret your dream if you tell us what your dream was, but how in the world can we tell you what your dream was? But there was a man in the kingdom who could, and Daniel comes forward, and he is able by God to tell Daniel, I mean, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, what his dream was. And as soon as he tells him, the king says, that was it, that was it. What was the dream about? It was about a colossal image that represented all the coming for, well, the then uh, kingdom of Babylon, and then the next three or four um, world Gentile empires. Was the head of gold was Babylon, then there was the, the breastplate of silver, represented the Medo-Persian empire, and then there was the brass um, abdomen piece that represented the empire of Greece, and then there was Rome, the legs, and it ended with the toes and the feet, you know, mixed clay and iron that represented the revived Roman empire of the end days. And then in the dream, a giant great stone came down, and it was a stone cut out without hands, meaning that it was virgin born, you know, not not of man, it was supernatural, came down, a stone not cut out without, cut out without hands, or however it's worded, comes down from the heavens, and it hits that colossal image where? On its feet, on the toes. And the whole thing comes crumbling down, and the wind comes along and blows it away, and there's nothing left of all those Gentile world empires. And that great stone, it says, becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. Well, The great stone the Jews understood was a picture of the coming Messiah. And when he came, he would set up his kingdom and it would cover the whole earth. The great mountain was the the messianic kingdom. So, as Jesus had done, Peter now also uses Psalm 118.22 as he stands before Israel's religious rulers, saying in effect to them, you rejected Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and you crucified him. 
And in doing so, unbeknownst to you, you actually fulfilled the prophecy that the the stone cut out without hands, the Messiah of Daniel, was rejected of you builders. Unbeknownst to you, you fulfilled Psalm 118.22. But that stone has now become the head of the corner. The cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most important stone of a foundation. He's building a new thing, this stone, this great stone, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. He's building a new thing. And one day, it's going to fill the entire earth. When did that stone become the chief cornerstone? When? When God raised him from the dead. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Well, not only does Peter speak boldly like Jesus and use the same scripture as Jesus, but he also spoke authoritatively and dogmatically just like Jesus. The very last sentence of his response to the Sanhedrin council is about as dogmatic as you can get. (laughs) Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven, given amongst men, whereby we must be saved. That is pretty exclusive, isn't it? I mean, it's saying there's no other name under heaven. I don't care what that name is. Buddha, Muhammad, we must be saved. It's, it, reminded, it must have reminded them of the Lord's exclusivity. When he said, except a man be born again, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And how about his words, I am the way, the truth, singular, exclusive, right? The life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That is exclusive. You see why all the other religions cannot tolerate Christianity? It's because Christianity is very exclusive. We Christians Our faith, if we really believe the Bible, now I know there's a lot of Christians who say, well, that we can't take that, you know, they have to water it down. But if you really believe the Bible and you believe what Jesus said and what the apostles say, Christianity negates all other religions. Christianity is pretty intolerant because we say there is only one way. Because that is the truth. There is only one way. There is only one name whereby we must be saved. And that name is Jesus Christ. Now we love the lost, but we have to give them the truth, don't we? They need the truth. That's what Peter's doing here. Peter was not only a preacher. Acts chapter 2, his sermon after the day, you know, on the day of Pentecost, he was a great preacher on that day. And then remember the sermon we looked at in Acts chapter 3? What was he? Ooh, a theologian. Amazing. Uh, He was a preacher and he was a theologian. And now what is he? He's an evangelist. Peter was a preacher, a teacher, a theologian, and an evangelist. He spoke these words with the purpose of trying to win these men to salvation in the one name under heaven whereby they must be saved. That's a strong thing to say before this council of 72 men, you know? It really is a very... What would you have said if you were in their places? 
Would you have said something that strong? You would have if you were spirit-filled. All right, let's look now at the impression that this made on the Sanhedrin in verses 13 and 14. It says, now when they, and notice this word, saw the boldness. You would think it'd say heard, when they heard the boldness. But it says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with who? Jesus. Isn't that a compliment? Wouldn't want, want, don't you want people to say of you, ah, it's obvious she's been spending time with Jesus. That's the greatest compliment you can get. And beholding the man, and now we know he was there, beholding the man which was healed, standing with them. That's the key, isn't it? Not laying, standing with them. They could say Nothing against it. All right, here in verse 13, we find recorded for us. If you think about it, only the Holy Spirit would have known this. Luke wouldn't have known this. But um, we, we hear the impression that, that the, the council members had because of Peter's speech. And it is an impression that we learn by example of a spirit-filled person's response to persecution. The council marveled, and they marveled about several things. First of all, they marveled at the boldness that they saw in Peter and John. Now, how can you see boldness in a person? How can you see it? Well, by their mannerisms, by their facial expression, by their stance, yes, by their posture, you know, by, by their words, of course, but but you can see it in the way they were standing. They weren't standing there looking down at the ground, you know. Um, they were looking boldly out at the, at the men in front of them. Their knees weren't knocking together. They weren't shaking. Uh, they were standing there, and they were authoritative. There was just something about their posture that they saw boldness in them. And they heard also boldness in what they said. This tells us, then, that spirit-filled people respond with boldness. And the Greek word that is used for boldness is the word parousia, which actually uh, refers to a freedom of speech. We hear so much about that today, don't we? Freedom of speech. I have my rights to speak. Um, It's freedom of speech that someone has as his democratic right. You know, in that day, there were millions of people who were slaves, Rome put many, many people into slavery, and the slaves did not have freedom of speech to say whatever they wanted. But those who did, those who were Roman citizens, they had a boldness to say whatever they wanted. It was their democratic right. Literally, the word parousia means all words. It is the right to say anything. Peter and John stood there, Peter, of course, speaking, but what they said was spoken as though it was their right to speak it. And it was. It was their God-given right to speak what they said, and it was also their God-given responsibility to speak it. When people are under the control of God's spirit, you know what it does? It does something to their tongues. If you are spirit-filled, it's going to do something to your tongue. When a person is more concerned about themselves and how they're being perceived by others, it affects their tongues. 
it, there's just something stiff about their speech. They don't have a freedom about their speech. If, if, if they're more concerned about self, they're, they're thinking, how am I being perceived by those listening to me? You know, am, am I coming across right? Or are they going to think little of me? But when you're spirit-filled, you're not concerned about self. You, it's, it's a dying to self. You really forget all about self, and you, you're concentrating on what you're saying, the words of truth that you're speaking. Um, you kind of cast aside all concerns, you know, about self to the wind. There's no caution about yourself. Now, you, you can hear sometimes a young preacher, and, and he's, he's kind of concerned about himself because he's real stiff, you know, and he's not free in his movements, and, and he's standing there, and you know he's not really spirit-filled because if he's spirit-filled, he's just going to be speaking from his heart, Right? And it's not just young preachers, but you seem to see that more in young ones than older ones. But, but that's, you know, just you speak the truth and you don't care about anything else. That's a spirit-filled person. Now, a second impression of the council about Peter and John is, that they marveled about is that they were just unlearned and ignorant men. And that sounds pretty harsh, but the word unlearned means really that they were just not schooled in the rabbinical schools. You know, they weren't taught, they didn't go to Gamaliel. They didn't go to the, the um, Institute of Jerusalem for rabbinic teaching or whatever. You know, they just, they were just Galilean fishermen. It doesn't mean that they were unlettered. We know Peter and John both knew how to write. Actually, they were pretty good writers, weren't they? It just means that they weren't schooled with the right kind of schooling. They didn't have Ivy League schooling. It says they were ignorant men. That doesn't mean they were dumb. It just means that they were common men. They were laymen. They marvel. This council marvels because they do not understand how such untrained laymen can stand there before them and be so daringly aggressive and speak with such power and such confident authority. They just don't get it. How can these guys, why aren't they frightened of us? Don't they know who we are? A spirit-filled person, you see, is enlarged beyond himself. He's enlarged beyond his schooling. He's enlarged beyond his natural abilities. He's enlarged beyond his upbringing. And he just seems to transcend everything that normally he is. It's amazing that Peter talks to such supposed scholar experts of his day. You know, the theologians, these are the theologians of Israel. It's amazing that he speaks in such a way that he is actually teaching them. Do you know that? That's what Peter's doing. He's teaching these supposed experts. And what is he? A common Galilean fisherman. Spirit filled people facing persecution will have power they will have ability they will have words they will have boldness they will have knowledge and the lord had told his people that this is the way it would be now here's where i want you to turn would you turn turn to luke 21 and see this for yourself luke 21 i need to get there too Look at, starting at verse 12 of Luke 21, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, uh, he tells them, 
that they shall, they shall come, verse 12, they shall come and they, they'll lay hands on you, you know, they'll take you away in bonds and they'll persecute you, delivering you up, in, up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. It's all about the name again, isn't it? And it shall turn to you for a testimony. And that's exactly what had happened. You know, they, they asked Peter and John, Basically, you know, by what power and what name, they're asking you for a testimony. And look what he says in verse 14. Settle it, therefore, in your hearts not to meditate before what ye shall answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay or respond to, nor resist. See, the Lord had told his people that this would happen. And this is exactly what we see happening in this, in this account here in Acts chapter 4. We ask ourselves, whatever happened to Peter's foot and mouth disease? Where did it go? Well, I'm sure that it flared up every now and then because Peter still lived with his Sin nature, right? In his flesh. And it's that way with you and I too. But when he stood before this council, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus did just exactly what he promised he would do. He gave him a mouth. And he gave him wisdom. You see, Acts is the continuing works and words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter opened his mouth and Jesus spoke. That's why he sounded just like Jesus. And the adversaries marveled. And they did not know how to respond. And they did not know how to resist. No wonder this council noticed that these men had been with Jesus. When you think about it, you know, there are a lot of things that Peter could have said that he didn't say. This is a really short little message here. It's just a few verses that that he spoke to this council. There's a lot of things he could have said that he didn't say. Remember, Jesus was always succinct, wasn't he? Right to the point. Just take that sword and just pierce right through. That's what Peter does. Some Christians would just think, you know, a lot of Christians would have been in this predicament. They would have been very quiet. They would have been standing there looking down and, you know, not looking directly at anyone. They would try to say as little as possible, kind of hoping that if they did not offend their opponents, their persecutors, maybe somehow they could get out of their life. Wouldn't a lot of Christians do that? Yeah, they would, because that would be a not spirit-filled person doing that. Other Christians would go after their opponents in anger over the injustice of it all. I mean, they'd just be furious. I have my rights. What in the world are you doing arresting me? You didn't give me my Miranda rights, you know? I have a a right. I am going to to appeal to the Supreme Court about this. And then it would dawn on them, oh, you guys are the Supreme Court. Uh-oh, I am in trouble. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll go out and I'll get a petition, have thousands sign it. And we'll get a busload of us and we'll ride to Rome. And we'll appeal to Caesar about this. Some, some Christians would be angry, right? But that response would not be a spirit-filled response either. When you look through the book of Acts... We find that every time one of the first generation believers is brought before some kind of a government 
ruler, king, you know, Festus, Felix, or, or in the synagogues or before this council. You know what they always do? They always go directly to the gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they always do it graciously, very politely. The gospel was the whole point, and they understood this. That's the whole point of them standing there before their persecutors in the first place. That's why Jesus put us here, so we could give the gospel message to these leaders. It was to drive the message home to their hearts with the scripture and with the reality of what had happened at Calvary and the reality of what had happened at the empty tomb. These men, this council, they knew that they had, they had bribed the Roman soldiers to tell a lie about Jesus' body being stolen, right? They knew that. They're the ones that paid him off. So they know. They know the whole thing is a lie. They also knew that they had illegally and unjustly tried and crucified, had Jesus crucified. So if anyone should have been convicted of their sin, who was it? This council. Annas and Caiaphas and all of the rest of them. And Peter was using his weapon very, very skillfully, his two-edged sword, the word of God. He's telling these guys, basically, that there is a God in heaven. And he is a whole lot bigger, and he is a whole lot wiser than you. And you might be able to kill the body, but you cannot kill the soul. And you might have thought you were successful when you killed the body of Jesus Christ, but you couldn't even hold that body in its grave. God has raised him from the dead. Although you rejected and you crucified the stone, you only succeeded in making him the chief cornerstone of a great foundation that one day is going to fill the whole earth. That's what Peter is saying to them. And they're speechless. They are speechless. They could not think of a thing to say. Isn't that how it often was with Jesus? The religious rulers were silenced. They didn't know how to answer him. Same thing here. They beheld the former lame man standing there before them, and there wasn't a thing they could say against it. Even Annas and Caiaphas were silent. That's amazing. Those were very wicked, sarcastic men, and they're silent. And the atmosphere in the room is a little bit embarrassing. So they realize they need to talk privately and figure out a plan. So they dismiss the three men from the chamber and they have a council session. And that's what we read next in verses 15 to 22. Their intention to silence these men. Verse 15. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council... They conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God 
to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. That puts them in a predicament, doesn't it? He says, I dare you to say that we should listen to you more than we should listen to God. And then verse 20, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. How did Luke know what was going on in that chamber? He's the one who told us of their little session where they said, what shall we do? You know, we can't say anything because we, how did Luke know all that? Well, do you think that possibly one of those men out of the 72 or maybe more than one of those men came to Christ later on and reported to the apostles and to Luke what had happened inside that chamber? Possibly. We do know that many priests were saved. We know that Pharisees were saved. I don't ever read of any Sadducees being saved, but perhaps there were one or two. Uh, Is it possible for the persecutors to get saved? Is it possible for the enemies of Christ to be saved? Yes, otherwise none of us would be here, right? We are all at enmity at one time. Yes, it is possible for persecutors to be saved. They say the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Was there one persecutor in particular you can think of who was saved and he absolutely turned this world up, the Gentile world upside down? Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who became the great apostle Paul, wrote at least 13 books of our New Testament. Yes, it's possible for the persecutors to be saved if we give them the truth like Peter and John did. In verse 16, they took, they look at one another, the council, and they ask, what shall we do to these men? And that shows us their heart so very, very clearly. Because instead of saying, what shall we do with the message of these men? What do they say? What shall we do to these men? They want to get rid of them. They they want to do something with them so they can avoid the truth. And so that they can silence the truth. The worst thing is they, they want to keep others from hearing the truth. That's the worst of all, isn't it? One thing to keep the truth from yourself, but to try to prevent it from others from hearing it. They admit to one another that a notable miracle, a notable miracle has indeed been done by them. They could not deny the miracles of Jesus, could they? I mean, they could attribute them to Beelzebub, but they couldn't deny the fact that he performed many fantastic, notable miracles, and neither can they deny this miracle. Um, they, they all would have recognized this man. They, had to pass, you know, they went to the temple all the time. They would have seen this guy for years. They knew him. And all that dwelled in Jerusalem knew it was the same man who had begged for decades at the beautiful gate. So they couldn't deny it. They would have if they could have, but they couldn't. And so um, this is what they're saying to each other. And really, now when you think about it, This is the whole reason why this man had been born lame. Do you get that? Over 40 years he has been lame. This is the reason Jesus never healed him when he passed by him. You know, Jesus walked by this man. Jesus spent a lot of time in the temple. And he walked by this man many times. 
And the man might have wondered, why don't you heal me? Why don't you heal me? Why don't you? And Jesus was saying, in due time, in due time. And now was the due time. You see, it was for a time such as this. Just like Esther said, I was born for a time such as this. And this is why the man was healed by Peter and John at this time. Because nobody in Jerusalem could deny how fantastic this miracle was. He had been there so long, everybody in town knew him. And as I said, I bet everybody in town knew his name. He did not have to say a word to the council. You know, they try to shut up Peter and John. They don't have to shut up the man because he never, he doesn't have to say a word. All he has to do is walk around town. He is a walking testimony. <laughs> he just stands there in the presence of the one, you know, and he glorifies the one who heals him just by walking. Isn't it amazing? It is so amazing to think that this elite, educated, wealthy, powerful group of men were confounded by the witness of two simple Galilean fishermen and one local beggar. Wow. Isn't that amazing? And in that, and using, you know, the nobodies of this world, so to speak, <laughs> who gets the glory? God gets the glory. So because they couldn't deny the miracle, they hoped at least that they, that they could keep it quiet. All right? So, and by the way, this goes to show us that miracles alone cannot convict somebody or convince somebody to believe, right? They knew of all kinds of miracles, and yet they were not convicted to believe in their hearts. People can have miracle after miracle and after miracle. What they need is the truth, the word of God. So they decide that they would straightly, whatever that means, straightly threaten Peter and John. I guess immediately. We'll, we'll just go in there and we'll threaten them that they are not allowed henceforth to speak or teach in this man's name, you know, in the name of Jesus. So they call them back into the chamber and they give them their command. They're forbidden to speak at all or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Verse 18. Now, the literal translation in the Greek of Peter and John's fantastic response, this is a spirit-filled response to persecutors, actually starts out exactly like it says. It says, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. You know, that puts the, the council in a predicament because they would have to say that it was more important, more right for Peter and John to listen to them than it would be to listen to God. But then the next words actually in the Greek are different than what you see in the English. The next words literally read this way. For we are not able not to speak the things which we have seen and heard. The Greek word that is translated cannot but, where is it? Let's see what verse is it. 20. For we cannot but speak. The Greek word there is the same word that is translated in Acts 1.8 as power. Just hang in there and, and hear me through. In Acts 1.8, it's translated as power when Jesus said, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. The same word power. It refers to an ability, having an ability. You shall receive ability, and you shall be my witnesses. When we put 
that verse, Acts 1-8, together with what they say here in Acts 4, we find that Peter and John were saying this. They were saying, we are not able not to speak. It is what we could call, and this sounds like an oxymoron, omnipotent inability. Does God have omnipotent inability in certain areas? I'll give you one example. God, even though he's omnipotent, he cannot lie. Okay? So this is omnipotent inability. They were not able not to speak of the name of Jesus Christ. They were compelled from within such that it made it impossible for them not to speak of what they had seen and what they had heard regarding Jesus. We don't have the ability not to speak is what they're saying. A spirit-filled person has to speak what the spirit says to him or her to speak. They have no choice in the matter. This happened in the Old Testament, you know, when the spirit of God would come upon one of the prophets in the Old Testament. They had no control over it. They had to say, God gave them the mouth and the wisdom, and they had to say what God put into their mouth to say. They had no choice. And even Balaam, remember Balaam, the prophet for prophet? (laughs) He wanted to curse Israel, and he couldn't. Every time he opened his mouth, he blessed Israel. Saul, the same thing. We read about this in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Poor guy, he, he prophesied to Israel for years and years, and nobody ever listened to him. They just hated him. And, and he, I mean, that was a rough life, that poor guy. And he wanted to quit so many times, but he couldn't. And he said this, he said, he said he was talking to himself and he said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. I've had it. Nobody ever listens to me. I'm just going to quit. I'm going to give up. That's it. I've cried my eyes out and I'm going to give up. But then the next, very next word says, but... But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I was weary from forbearing, and I could not stay. I couldn't stop. I had to speak. I had to. I can identify with this. I tell you all the time, I quit all the time. I did. I quit a couple weeks ago. I said, that's it. I can't do it anymore. I was on stress up to here. I cannot do it. Quit. But then... I can't. It's impossible. I cannot. I'm just miserable unless I'm speaking forth. You know, I I read and I just get so full, I'm just ready to just burst. You know, stick me with a pin and I'll just explode. So I can identify with this. This This is just, this is what they're saying. They had no choice. Jesus said, you'll receive power and you shall be my witnesses. You're not going to have any choice in the matter. They were his compulsive witnesses. Well, having run out of options due to the undeniable miracle and because of all the people glorifying God for what was done to a man above 40 years old who had never walked, the Sanhedrin council gave some uh, you know, additional weak threats that meant nothing, and they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them. Do you know what the 21st century church needs more than anything? (laughs) Persecution. (laughs) That is probably true. 
But what we really need in the face of persecution is thousands upon thousands, I would say millions upon millions of spirit-filled people just like this. We need men and women who are faithful, who are compassionate, bold, dogmatic, joyful, Christ-centered, scripture-filled, Christ-exalting, humble, and unstoppable, compulsive witnesses for Jesus Christ. That's what we need, and we could turn our world upside down. I am. We need to be spirit-filled. We have the Holy Spirit. Let's just give him all of us. Right. All right, let's pray. Father, we give thanks again, once again, for another year of Bible study. Thank you for being so gracious to us. Thank you for the privilege to do this, to meet together, to study your word. And thank you for the examples in scripture, such as the one we just looked at, that show us it is possible to be so controlled by your spirit that we're beyond fear. We're beyond self and any thoughts of the consequences to us personally. We know that so often we find, and I'm guilty of this, we're just too timid to speak. Sometimes we're too brazen to speak. But we pray that we can, that you can adjust us to the right balance where we speak both with love and boldness, the truth of Jesus Christ to anyone and everyone, friend or foe, everyone you place in front of us. Give us those divine appointments. We want to have the kind of compulsive testimony that issues forth from our lips, that you give us the mouth and you give us the wisdom. And, Father, we do ask that you would forgive us for our, our preoccupation with our earthly affairs that do take up so much of our time and our energy and our resources. But we thank you that you you understand, you can empathize, you know that we struggle. And you tell us, you just simply tell us that whatsoever we do, even if it's taking care of small children, changing a diaper, dealing with sickness, battling old age, whatever we do, we should do it for your glory and be ever ready to give an account for the hope that is within us. I ask, Father, that the word of God would richly dwell and dwell every one of us over the summer and bring our hearts to a selfishness and our tongues to a freedom of speech to evangelize, to be salt and light during the summer months. For we pray in your blessed name.